All right. Well, I was thinking about Rich Nichols' uh, little speech last week, and I was sitting up the balcony, and it's funny, maybe God knew I was going to be filling for Howard this week because he said something during his little presentation where he said, Yeshua is the greatest. He's the greatest. He's absolutely the greatest. And I kind of wrote down my little tablet, Yeshua is the greatest. And I really feel like talking more about why Yeshua is the greatest at some point. Sometime in the future, I want to talk more about why Yeshua is the greatest and a sermon of some kind. Well, anyway, so Howard asked me to speak, and I said, okay, I'll talk about why Yeshua is the greatest. So it works out just fine. So today I want to talk about three things, the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. That's something that is the greatest event in human history. So turn with me to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to look at a, a very early text about the uh, resurrection of Yeshua. Now, for some of us, you may be saying, well, why don't we just talk about the resurrection a couple months? I mean, you know, that's the time of the year we talk about it. Well, uh, if there's no resurrection, none of us would be here today, and none of us would be able to do anything in the Lord. We would have no empowerment today at all. So the resurrection matters every day. So we come here to a text in 1 Corinthians and Paul is dealing with a group of people here in Corinth who were beginning to deny the resurrection of the dead. They uh, actually were only believing in what we might call a, a very theological word, immortality, or the immortality of the soul. You know, they thought that there was no really physical resurrection, but they thought that basically people, when they die, their soul goes on and that's it. So there's no real bodily, physical resurrection of the dead, which uh, Paul certainly adhered to and is a very Jewish concept. So Paul's dealing with this audience here, and, you know, he has to uh, lay out here really some of the principles about the resurrection, why it's so important. And, you know, whenever we come to a chapter in the Bible, we always want to look at what was happening in the previous chapter, right? We generally see the segue from one chapter to the next, and as Paul ends 1 Corinthians 14, we know that was about spiritual gifts. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 15, and, uh, you know, from a rhetorical perspective, he's going to go ahead and tell them, this is what I'm going to talk to you about right now. So he switches gears here into a completely different topic, leaving the spiritual gifts issue, going to the resurrection. So he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, says here in verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which all, you also received, in which you also stand. Now, as we go through 1 Corinthians 15, we want to realize that Paul is not necessarily trying to prove the resurrection. Like, it's, yes, there's some elements here, we'll talk about the appearances and things, but he's not necessarily to provide, a, a, you know, the only things that are interested in proving whether Yeshua rose from the dead. He's really trying to work against this issue of them not believing in the resurrection of the dead. He's trying to build a case against that view that's happening in Corinth, right? And so he says here, as he just says, I just read, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which you also stand. He's saying here, this is something that you should know, that you already should know this, that without the resurrection, there's no way for you to stand. This past event of Yeshua rising from the dead impacts your present reality in the Lord today. It has a past action, but it has a present implication right now. And you cannot stand uh, firm in the gospel uh, if you reject the resurrection. And then as he says here in verse 2, he talks about, he says here, "...by which we were also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." 
Now, really what we should, uh, as it says here, by which we are also saved, by which you are also saved, by which you are saved, I'm sorry, uh, we really want to think of that as as you're being saved, right? Because uh, it's not like Yeshua rose and then, uh, you know, you just think about when you die, you go to heaven or whatever. It's, it's present, there is a present implication right now by the Corinthians. He wants them to know you are being saved right now. Your salvation is being impacted by the resurrection of the Messiah. You know, that word salvation has a very, very uh, deep, long, uh, you know, history in our, in our uh, thinking as believers. We, I remember years ago when I was coming to Beth Messiah, I was just visiting, and honestly, it's biblically illiterate. I, I'd never read the Bible, and I was just listening to Howard preach. I wasn't a believer yet for about a month or so. I was just sitting in the back listening to Howard preach, and Howard preach on Matthew, and I'd be sitting there going, what is he talking about? I don't, I don't know anything about the book of Matthew. So I would just listen and listen to the word. And one day after the message, these two gentlemen, they don't go here anymore, but they walked up to me and they said, Eric, are you saved? I said, are you saved? And I was like, uh, I, what do you mean? I, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. What does that word mean? So I called my, I got home that day and I called my friend who was supposed to be a believer and I called him and I said, what do they mean by that word saved? I don't, what are they talking about? And he did his best to explain it to me, although he didn't really know as well, because he uh, was just checking out the, the whole thing to begin with himself. He wasn't officially a believer yet. So, you know, as, the, as time goes on, you hear that, that word salvation and saved a lot. Uh, it's a very common lingo, but we need to remember, you know, that uh, salvation has a, is a very broad topic in the Bible. There's very con- a lot of context to the word salvation, of course, and Israel's history all throughout the Tanakh. Uh, God would, of course, deliver the Jewish people, even bring them out of the exodus account was an issue of salvation he delivered them he saved them brought them out uh, and salvation of course has three issues uh, three uh really things we want to remember a present has it's certainly a past event where yeshua died and rose from the dead has a pre- present implication today where we're still working out our salvation today and it has a future there's a future aspect to it when we pass on this earth of course we will uh, stand in the presence of the lord and then one day we will be physically resurrected as well in the uh, new heavens, new earth. And so it's a win-win, right? Past, present, future, and then even future after that. So we never want to think of salvation as simply just about when I die, I go somewhere after I die. That's really a limiting, uh, limited view of the word salvation, okay? So Paul says here, he talks about they're being saved right now by the, uh, the resurrection, okay? So he's trying to build a case, he's trying to build a case that Unless you believe the resurrection, you are believed in vain. The gospel cannot be true. It is false. You cannot actually preach the gospel. You cannot believe this message unless you believe in the resurrection. Now, we come to verse 3. He says here, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that the Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So, this is a very interesting text because... Paul says here, this is something that he has, this message is something he's received. Now, keep your uh, finger in 1 Corinthians 15. Just keep it there and turn to Galatians chapter 1. I want to go back to, or go to Galatians 1. Now, that word received is very interesting because really it means to receive from somebody else. Paul's received this message uh, from somebody else. You know, this, uh, what he's about to lay out here in the rest of the text but where did Paul receive this? Because if we look at Galatians 1, it's kind of interesting. Paul talks about how he received the gospel, what happened to him in his experience on the Damascus Road. 
Uh, let's look at uh, Galatians 1. I'm going to go ahead and, and start in verse 1 here. We're going to read a few verses. It says here, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for our sins that we might rescue us, that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Messiah for a different gospel, which is really not another, but only there are some who are distorting or some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Yeshua. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you the gospel, contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to which he has received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Yeshua. For I would have you known, brethren, the gospel which is preached to me is not according to man. For now, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was somehow advancing in Judaism behind many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral, for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so I might preach him on him the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away to Arabia and returned once to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stay with him 15 days. I did not see any of their apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now you notice here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he received this message. He talks about he received this message. He's going to lay out exactly what he received as we go on. But then we go to Galatians 1. Paul says here he received this, uh, this gospel from the Lord, right? It was a direct encounter with the risen Messiah. It's a supernatural experience. So the question becomes, what has Paul received and how does it relate to 1 Corinthians 15? Is this different from Galatians 1? Uh, he uses the same language here. He received uh, the gospel from the Messiah directly. He didn't talk to anybody else. He didn't count any, other, uh, any of the apostles. But when you go down to the end of Galatians 1 here in verse 18, like I just read, it says here, he went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. Now remember, he hadn't met the apostles before this. He's going up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. He stayed with them 15 days. And then he talks about James here. So just keep that in mind, the background there of going up to meet, uh, you know, Cephas and James in Jerusalem, okay? Then go back to 1 Corinthians 15 here. So he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about, as he says he received this message, that he, uh, he begins to talk about the Messiah. Now, I think most likely that Paul received this information, 1 Corinthians 15, most likely in that encounter in Jerusalem with Peter, with Cephas, and James. Now, I'm not going to be, say I'm 100% certain, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but when we lay out this text here, we go from verse 3 on, the information that Paul lays out here about the appearance to Cephas and to James, you have to say to yourself, 
Where did he find out about this? Well, most likely it was that encounter in Jerusalem when he went up to stay with Peter and James. I'm not 100% sure, but there's a very good chance that's where he received, when he says he received it, that's where he received this information, okay? All right, so he says here in verse 3, he says, I delivered to you his first importance. I also received that the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, when it comes to this text, about Yeshua dying for our sins according to the scriptures. We don't have any specific text here that Paul mentions that talks about in the Tanakh. He doesn't say, I'm talking about Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or this text, or he doesn't say, I'm talking about in Leviticus where uh, it says here, I wrote it down on the scapegoat offering, where, let's see, it says here, then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the heads of the live goat Confess that all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone uh, designated for the task. So, as you see in that text, the sins are put on the heads of the goat and these sins are carried away uh, out into the wilderness. You know, maybe that lays a little background here for Paul's understanding about the Messiah being uh, standing in our place and dying in our place. You know, maybe that's what Paul's talking about. We just don't know. Paul doesn't mention any specific text here. It could be regarding the entire redemptive plan of the Tanakh. Maybe that's what he's talking about. But one way or the other, Paul is saying the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's somewhere in the Tanakh that Paul's looking at. Now, I was going back as I was preparing for this message, and I remembered uh, when uh, Michael Brown came here oh, a few years ago, a couple years ago, and I had him. Uh, he talked a little bit about this book called The Real Kosher Yeshua. <laughs> Back then it came out. He was responding to a, another book called The, the uh, Kosher Yeshua written by uh, Rabbi Shmuley. And in this one chapter, Michael talks about uh, this issue of atonement in the Messiah. And it's kind of interesting. Whenever you talk to Jewish people about you know, Yeshua's death being an atonement for us, and he's our atonement, you know, sometimes you get the responses, well, where, where do you get that from? I mean, that's not a Jewish concept, the Messiah atoning for our sins. I mean, then you talk about Isaiah 53, and they generally say that's about Israel, and you go back and forth and all that stuff. But it's interesting that Michael has this, uh, this chapter here called uh, The Death of the Righteous, uh, The Atoning Power of the Death of the Righteous. And he lays out here a case in the Jewish literature uh, after Yeshua, actually most of this literature is after the time of Yeshua, about how Israel, or the rabbis believe in a, how a righteous person could atone for sin, a righteous individual. And he has this quote here by a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Burel Wine. I honestly, I, uh, I don't know a lot about him, but he's apparently a very orthodox, uh, he's an orthodox Jewish historian, very respected. But this is what he says here, Rabbi Wine, about this atoning uh, issue with a righteous person. He says here, another consideration teamed with the Jewish response to the slaughter of its people is it was an old Jewish tradition dating back to biblical times that the death of the righteous and the innocent served as an expiation for the sins of the nation of the world. The stories of Isaac and of Nadav and Avihu, the prophetic description of Israel as the long-suffering servant of the Lord, the sacrificial service in the temple, all served to reinforce this basic concept of the death of the righteous as an atonement for the sins of other men. Jewish people nurtured this classic idea of death as an atonement, and this attitude towards their own tragedies was their constant companion throughout the turbulent exile. 
Therefore, the holy bleak picture of an unreasoning slaughter was somewhat received, relieved by the fact that the innocent did not die in vain and the betterment of Israel and humankind somehow was advanced by the stretching their neck to be slaughtered. What is amazing is that this abstract, sophisticated theological thought should have become so ingrained in the psyche of people that even the least educated and most simplistic of Jewish people understood the lesson and acted upon it, acted upon it giving up precious life in a soaring act of belief and affirmation of the better tomorrow. The spirit of the Jewish people is truly reflected in this historical chronicle of the time. Would the Holy One, blessed be He, dispense judgment without justice? But we say that he who whom God loves will be chastised. For since the day of the holy temple is destroyed, the righteous are seized by death for the iniquities of the generation. It's very interesting. And then he uh, mentions a midrash here. Uh, there is a midrash. It says the Messiah, in order to atone for both of them, for Adam and David, will make his soul a trespass offering. That is, it is written, uh, he'll be a guilt offering. So there's all kinds of uh, rabbinic literature, uh, obviously more than that, that uh, it's interesting after Yeshua to begin to talk about this issue of how the Messiah would atone. He's an atoning Messiah. He's a righteous individual, and it made it into the Talmud and some of the other literatures. So maybe, uh, you know, we need to remember, of course, even though Paul is talking about the Tanakh here, that it's not foreign, of course, uh, to Jewish thought, uh, you know, even if Jewish people might say that to us. Now, he says here, uh, okay, so he goes on to say about, okay, he says the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, but then in verse 4, he says he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, who here saw Jody Magnus when she was here? That was probably three or four years ago. I don't know for sure, probably three years ago. She's a Jewish archaeologist that goes to Israel and focuses on the burials uh, at that time. She's done a lot of work on the burial customs of that day. And, you know, when she was here, she said very clearly, I remember it because I wrote it down, I have her book, that, uh, you know, the archaeological evidence matches what we know about Yeshua's burial in the Gospels, that when Yeshua was crucified, uh, you know, in the Gospels, it talks about how he was buried. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea came forward and offered him a burial, and we know that wealthy people could afford rock-cut tombs, right? And Yeshua obviously couldn't afford a rock-cut tomb, but Joseph of Arimathea offered Yeshua to be buried in one of his tombs, and that was called a rock-cut tomb. Because crucified victims, when they were crucified, generally they were placed in the ground, right? The, the uh, dirt was, they were just put in a trench pit in the ground, but not Yeshua. He was buried in a rock-cut tomb and given an honorable burial. And it says here he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that third day issue, you may be saying to yourself, as I've been asked, where does it say in the Tanakh the Messiah will be raised on the third day? Nowhere. It doesn't say it anywhere. It doesn't say, there's no text that says specifically the Messiah will be raised on the third day. But however, look at Hosea chapter 6. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. We'll get a better uh, look here at what Paul's talking about when he says the Messiah will be raised on the third day. It says here in Hosea 6, notice this text does not mention the word Messiah in it. It doesn't say anything about Yeshua, but it does mention the third day. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says of Hosea, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days, and he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Interesting. 
So it talks here about God doing something very significant on the third day. There's other texts that speak about the third day, uh, the significance of the third day. We have in Genesis 22, 4, Abraham came with Isaac to Mount Moriah on the third day. We have in Exodus 19:16 that God appeared to the glory upon Mount Sinai on the third day. We have in Genesis 42:18 that Joseph began to take pity on his brethren on the third day. We have in Jonah, after three days, Jonah prayed and was delivered on the third day. We have in Esther 5.1, Esther put on her royal robes for the deliverance of her people on the third day. And even in Midrash Rabbah, it says about Hosea 6.2, the rabbis say about Hosea 6.2, the Holy One, blessed be his name, never lets the just stay in affliction longer than three days. So what we see is that Paul is using that third day motif there. He's basically... Uh, talking about how on the third day something significant always happens in the Tanakh, right? And that, of course, of the Messiah rising on the third day, God delivered him. That's very significant. So that's what Paul's doing there, even though he doesn't mention the exact word Messiah in the text, okay, in the, in the Tanakh. All right, so he says here, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, to get back there again, I lost it. Happens sometimes. Okay, he says here in verse 5, and then he goes, he starts talking about the appearances here. Now, I hope we know that uh, if Yeshua had just been buried in an empty tomb and there were no appearances after that, it'd be really hard to make a case for the resurrection. Uh, We'd have a difficult time without these appearances, talking about his physical appearances to these people here. But when you look up the word appearance in the, uh, what we call the Greek Septuagint, the translation of the Tanakh, something that Henry and Sam Meyer are way more well-versed in than I ever will be, um, it talks a lot about how God uh, appeared to people in the Tanakh, uh, the various appearances of God appearing to people. So it's kind of interesting. So he says here in verse 5, he says here, he starts with the appearances, and he's very systematic. He lays it out one after the other here. He's going to build a case about these appearances, and then he's going to start, Paul's going to talk about himself. But he says here in verse 5 how he appeared to uh, Cephas and then to the twelve uh, in order. So, of course, the Messiah appeared to Peter, uh, Cephas, and then he appeared to the 12 disciples. And then in verse 6, it says, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, we don't really have any other text in the New Testament about the 500. This is the only place Paul mentions it. Uh, For some reason, he does. It may be the 500 may be the group of people at the end of Matthew 28 in Galilee. We just, we don't know for sure, but Paul doesn't say 501. He says 500. I've never understood that. Why doesn't he say 501 or 502? He says 500. He rounds it off. So apparently the Messiah appeared to more than 500, and Paul says you can go talk to them if you want to. They're still alive, and we can talk to them about the Messiah appearing to them. And then he says in verse 7, he appeared to James and then all the apostles. He mentions James. Uh, who didn't initially follow the Messiah, but we don't have any other text in the New Testament mentioning this about the appearance to James, that apparently Yeshua did appear to James, and that probably turned him into a devout follower of the Messiah. And then uh, then in verse 8, Paul talks about himself. He says, last of all, one ultimately born, he appeared to me also. Now, why does Paul really lay this out here? Like, why does he have this appearances, you know, one after the other, and then why is he at the very end? Well, First of all, we need to realize that Paul's apostleship was always under attack. He was always being attacked for uh, whether he's being authentic, whether he's a deceiver. 
Paul wanted them to know that just as Yeshua had appeared to them, he appeared to Cephas, who's an apostle, he appeared to James, he appeared to the 500, he appeared to these people, he appeared to me, okay? I had the credentials to be an apostle, all right? I'm not some deceiver, I'm not a liar, I am really a genuine apostle of Messiah. He appeared to me as well. And he leaves himself at the very end, of course that's the order, because Yeshua did appear to Paul after all these other appearances, but he appeared to Paul, and he says here, it's very interesting when he says here in verse 8, when he says, untimely born. Now, some of your translations here uh, might say ultimately born, untimely born, uh, really depends on uh, what translation you have, but you know, we don't, there's something maybe Paul's talking about his birth. We don't really know. Maybe there's some sort of abnormal issue with the way he was born, or we don't know. But he's showing humility here, right? He's expressing his humility. He appeared to me. Last of all, he appeared to me. You know, he is uh, Messiah, poured out his grace upon me and appeared to me also. And I am genuinely, it's okay to be called an apostle. I am a genuine apostle, okay? And he says in verse 9, he says, I'm least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the ecclesia of God. And by the grace of God that I am, what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet I, not I, but the grace of God within me. Okay, so Paul, of course, wants them to know that the grace of God has been poured out on him. He was a persecutor, but Yeshua appeared to him as well, Okay. Okay, so then we go into verse 12 and 13 and 14. It says there, now, if the Messiah is preached and he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Messiah has been raised. And if the Messiah has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. He really is trying to get them to understand here, the Corinthians, that unless a Messiah is risen, your faith is in vain. It's a waste of time. And then he says here, it's really interesting that uh, when you go down to, uh, let's see here. Okay, in verse 15, he says, And wherever we are found to be false witnesses of God, even if because we testified against God that he raised Yeshua, and whom he, if he did not raise, in fact, the dead are not raised. Paul wants them to know this. Look. I know the Torah. I've been raised on the Torah. I know the issue about bearing false witness. My people know about it. And if we are out spreading this message that Yeshua rose from the dead and it's false, then we are false witnesses. We're breaking the Torah, right? We are absolutely the worst thing ever if we're actually proclaiming this message that Yeshua rose from the dead and it's not true. It's in vain. He says your faith is in vain and we're false witnesses. So Paul is really trying to hammer it home to them that this is really important that Yeshua rose from the dead. Now, it's really interesting to try to promote an event on a major college campus about the resurrection. I, and I know it's been mentioned here, but, and I appreciate you mentioning it. The resurrection of Messiah, fact or fiction? Well, it's really interesting to go to a college campus and try to talk about a guy that died 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead, okay? And try to promote an event that really talks about Yeshua rising from the dead. What you find out is that, in reality, today's culture, uh, most people don't even know what the resurrection is, right? We assume they do. Hey, he rose from the dead. Everybody believes he rose from the dead. I mean, he rose from the dead. It's the greatest thing ever. But what you find out is a lot of people don't even know the concept of resurrection. They don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, we have a gap, you know, of history. This was 2,000 years ago. 
we trust the witnesses that told us the truth. You know, we trust their testimony that they saw the risen Messiah and that uh, Yeshua really rose from the dead. We can't know with 100% certainty we weren't there, but we can build a reasonable case that it is really true that Yeshua rose from the dead. Um, But I am just finding out more and more, trying to promote an event about Yeshua's resurrection, uh, of course, comes with its challenges uh, because we live in a very biblically illiterate culture today. So I encourage you to uh, keep praying for us. I appreciate it. But, you know, even though, uh, you know, we have a good reasonable case for Yeshua rising from the dead, we may say to ourselves today, you know, what does this really mean for me? Uh, You know, what does it really matter? Uh, You know, we live in a very pragmatic culture. People think very pragmatically. What difference does a Messiah make in my life? How's this thing you're presenting to me going to help my family? How's it going to help my marriage? How's it going to help my children? How's it going to help me in my job? How's it going to do this for me or that for me? Or what's the pragmatic outcome of this? Uh, We have people that are very, very, very influenced by a very pragmatic mindset, just the way the culture is today. Well, may I respond by saying the greatest thing about the resurrection is that God comes to dwell with us, right? All throughout Israel's history, they had the tabernacle, the temple. We have uh, things where we see God wanting to dwell with the Jewish people, kind of getting close, but not all the way, and trying to set up ways and mediums for them to come close to him. And, and then what happens with the coming of the Messiah is that God comes to dwell with us permanently, right? He comes to actually indwell us through the gift of the Spirit, and he is with us wherever we go. So we are never alone, right? God comes to uh, be intimate with us. And so sometimes I think that we maybe take the resurrection a little for granted, what, what God has done for us through the Messiah. Now, you never notice sometimes when you're driving your car and you turn on sermons, maybe you listen to sermons, some of them maybe you don't have time, I don't know, but when I'm in my car, I try to, if I'm listening to something, I listen to something good and not, you know, the garbage. So I sometimes turn on the radio during the week, and I hear a sermon here and a sermon there by different pastors, different speakers, famous speakers. And have you ever noticed that sometimes you hear the same message about the same thing over and over? Like one week, you'll be turning on a Monday, it'll be a message about this. Then a Wednesday, you turn on, it's the same theme. And then a Friday, you'll hear it's about the same theme. Well, basically what you begin to realize is that God's trying to say something to you. Sometimes that's God speaking, where... He's trying to hammer home a point like, I really want you to get this. This is something I've been trying to say to you, or I'm trying to say to you. Um, I have people tell me this all the time. That's why it's so important that when we're here on a Saturday, that when Howard's speaking or someone's speaking, that we are active listeners, that we're listening for God to speak, because you know he may say something through a message that changes the direction of your life. He may say something that will provide a major, major difference in a situation in your life, a circumstance, right? So we need to always be listening to the active preaching of the word, right? Well, uh, back to what I was listening to. Um, I was hearing these messages on the, uh, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. And these uh, messages are talking about the sensitivity of the Spirit. And he was, these pastors were saying that, you know, we sometimes forget that when we have God to come live with us through the work of the Spirit, how sensitive He is. And perhaps maybe some of us forget that when the Spirit comes to be in our lives, thanks to the resurrection of Yeshua, by the way, He is very, very sensitive. 
and he can be easily offended. <laughs> In some cases, many cases, he can be easily offended. And so when it talks about the uh, spirit in the text, you know, especially in Ephesians, don't grieve the spirit or don't quench the spirit or walk in the spirit or all these passages about the spirit, we need to realize that we have God with us 24-7, wherever we go, right? He sees what we see. He hears what we hear. He uh, knows what we're reading. He knows what we're about to do. He knows everything, right? And so we need to be very, very sensitive to the fact that God has come to indwell us through the work of the Spirit. And I believe perhaps some of us here today, and just generally in life, uh, perhaps we just shut him out. Perhaps he's just not even having his way with us at all. Perhaps our circumstances, perhaps life's hardened us, perhaps something has happened where we are just not in tune with the Spirit in our lives. And we need renewal. We need, desperately need renewal. So, remember, with the resurrection, Yeshua has come to dwell us permanently through the gift of the Spirit, but He is there to help us. He is our helper, right? We are never alone, and He's there to be with us. But ask yourself today, am I really, really in tune with what God is doing in my life? What is He doing? Where is He? Where is He taking me? What's He saying to me? What's He saying to me through messages of Beth Messiah? What's he saying through others in my life? What's he saying through the word? What's he saying through prayer? What's he saying through prayer? Please, please help uh, pray for yourself. Pray for all of us that we would really walk closely with God and be in tune with what he's doing because the Spirit of God is a gift to us through the work of the resurrection, okay? So I encourage you to please, please pray uh, for our event because, you know, uh, you know, it comes to the uh, Jewish community, of course, they don't believe the resurrection is a messianic qualification. I've talked to Jewish people, like, I don't care if he rose from the dead, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean he's the Messiah. You're like, how can you believe that? But it's true. Uh, I've heard that many times. Uh, we had the skeptics, of course, that don't believe in miracles, so the resurrection is already crossed off the list to begin with. And then we have uh, Muslims who say Yeshua never rose from the dead, he never died anyway, never rose from the dead. And then we have uh, the Mormon community who says that, well, uh, if you have the experience of the Spirit, that's enough, and you don't, we don't care about the evidential side, so it sounds like, uh, almost like what we say sometimes, that we have the Spirit, we don't care about whether he really rose from the dead. So you just have a wide range of thought out there about the resurrection and who Yeshua is. But remember, one thing as we close, if this is really true, if this is really true that Yeshua rose from the dead, that it makes Yeshua very, very unique. He is not like anyone else, okay? And that's why you always want to ask somebody when they're talking about the Lord, you want to ask them, what if this is really true? What if it's really true that Yeshua rose from the dead? And they might say, well, I don't know. It's good for you. It's your thing, not my thing. No, if this is really true, Yeshua rose from the dead. He's the Messiah of Israel, all the nations. This really happened. You can know God. This really happened. It's Time, space, history. This impacts your life. It doesn't matter if you don't feel it. It doesn't matter if you don't care. If it happened, it happened. If it's true, it's true. You believing it doesn't make it true. It's either true or it's not true. Ask people those questions because this is the central event of our faith. This is our message. Yeshua is risen. And let's not take it for granted and take the uh, Spirit of God granted for our life at all. Okay? Why don't we have a word of prayer? Lord, we just thank you so much for the fact that Yeshua has come to indwell us through the work of the Spirit. We thank you, Lord God, that 
He is uh, with us wherever we go. We thank you, God, that Messiah is risen today and that he has provided a way for us to know you, provided a way for us to come into your presence all the time. He's provided a way for us to walk with you daily because of the gift of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you that he promised that he would send the Spirit, and he has done that through his resurrection and ascension. And Lord God, I pray today for all of us that are here, I pray, God, that if we've shut you out in any area of our life, I pray we'd allow you back in. And I pray, Lord God, that we would allow the Spirit to work in our lives to change us. Help us to cooperate with Him, because we know, Lord God, that you're willing to provide that transformation if we're willing to do our part as well. And Lord God, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. And you are the greatest. And Yeshua is the greatest. We thank you for what He's done for us. In His name, amen.